Well, good to see you tonight. If you have your Bible with you, have it on your device. Grab it and let's go to Galatians chapter 2. We're going to cover a a number of verses at the beginning, but then do a deep dive into one particular verse in Galatians chapter 2. You know, as Andrew was speaking a little while ago and talking about... uh, the uh, amount of quality time families get together, it certainly made me uh, all the more grateful for the chance that our family has had this week to be here with all of you at Mount Hermon. We've had some really great time together, and we decided since we were going to be coming out here to California that we would actually uh, put a week in advance before Mount Hermon together on vacation. And so we spent some time uh, down in the Los Angeles area and got the chance to go to um, Disneyland, and so you can see us here. This is my family. This is uh, my wife, Kim, my oldest son, Will, over there on the left, uh, my middle child, my son, Pearson. Will's 17, Pearson's 14, and Kathleen is nine. And uh, if you recognize the background, you can see there that we're standing on the Millennium Falcon. I got to fly the Millennium Falcon at Disneyland. My life is now complete. Um, and so uh, we really had a great time. But in addition to doing the Millennium Falcon, um, we also had the opportunity to ride Splash Mountain. And uh, of course, you can see that they put Dad in the very front, the seat that gets the most wet. I was drenched from head to toe at the end of this ride. You can see the exciting looks on all of our faces. But my uh, middle child, my son Pearson, the 14-year-old, knew that this was the place where they take the picture. And so he actually... Uh, posed uh, for the picture as he was coming down the ride there on Splash Mountain. We had a ball together, and so we're so grateful for the chance to, uh, to be out here with all of you this week. My topic for tonight is the idea that God is faithful to unite us to Christ. And as we dive into that topic together, will you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you tonight that you have spoken through your word that was inspired by your spirit so long ago, and yet you speak through your word to us by your spirit today. And so, Lord, we pray that you would speak, that we are listening. Would you give us hearts that are open to what it is that you have to say to us tonight? Would you invite us into a deeper place of knowing you and and loving you and, and trusting you? and to be more and more conformed to the image of Jesus. We thank you that because of our faith in him, we are united to Christ. You are faithful to unite us to Christ. We pray that tonight we would understand that truth in a deeper way that would make an impact on the way that we live each and every day of our lives. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. God is faithful And this week, we're talking about the faithfulness of God, and we're focusing on on different aspects of his faithfulness. And one of the aspects that we've chosen to talk about, one of the topics assigned to me, is that God is faithful to unite us to Christ. Our jumping off point, the verse that uh, Greg suggested uh, to to begin this idea, is found in 1 Corinthians 1, verse 9, where the Apostle Paul writes, God is faithful, who called you into fellowship with his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And that word fellowship is a word that uh, in my growing up was a rather thin word, that, that word fellowship, because every time I heard the, fe- the word fellowship, I associate it with a particular place, right? And maybe you had one of these places in your church as well, the fellowship hall. And so my understanding of fellowship was inevitably shaped by potluck suppers that we had in the fellowship hall. 
And, and those were great. I mean, I'd miss me a good potluck supper, but, but the word fellowship means so much more than I think what we often experience at a good potluck supper. The, the word fellowship, the, the Greek word koinonia, has this idea of participation in. It's a deep relational word. It's a word that can appropriately be used to describe the mutual relationship between God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, that, that the Trinity enjoys eternal koinonia, internal fellowship. And so here, when, when Paul uses this language to talk about our connection to Christ, he is speaking about a deep truth about our union with our Savior. And what we find is, is when we stop to really think and really look at all the ways that the New Testament speaks about the idea of our union with Christ, what, what we find, in fact, is that it's, that it's all over the place. The theologian Anthony Hochma says it this way, once your eyes are open to this concept of union with Christ, you'll find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. It's a pervasive concept. One of the ways that you see it is, Paul, one of his favorite phrases is this little phrase, in Christ. The book of Ephesians, particularly the first two chapters, over and over and over again. Paul says we're in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. So many places. And just a handful of those to illustrate for you the pervasiveness of this idea. By being in Christ, believers are crucified with Christ, Galatians 2.20. Buried with Christ, Colossians 2.12. Baptized into Christ and his death, Romans 6.3. United with Christ in his resurrection, Romans 6.5. Seated with Christ in the heavenly places, Ephesians 2.6. Christ dwells in our hearts, Paul says in Ephesians 3.17. Christ is in us, 2 Corinthians 13.5. And we are in Christ, 1 Corinthians 1.30. Paul talks about the idea that we, to, be, to gain Christ and to be found in him, Philippians 3.8 and 9. This idea of our union with Christ is pervasive throughout the New Testament because it is at the heart of the gospel. It is because of our union with Christ that we are justified, that we are sanctified, that we are adopted, and that we will be glorified. That all of these central concepts of New Testament theology are true of us precisely because of our union with Christ. Apart from our union with him, all that Christ has done would stand outside of us, separate from us, ineffective for us. Apart from the reality that we have been united with him and because of our union with him, we are declared righteous. Justification. Because of our union with him, we are becoming righteous. We are becoming holy, sanctification. Because of our union with him, we are adopted. Christ, who is the one and only unique son of the Father, and now we are children of the Father because of our relationship with Jesus, his beloved son. That we know that we will one day be glorified. We will see him and we will be as he is because of our union with him. John Calvin actually creates a large section of his classic work of theology, the Institutes of the Christian Religion, the heading of which is union with Christ. And all of these topics, justification, sanctification, adoption, glorification, all are subtopics under that heading of union with Christ. Calvin says, for the design of the gospel, 
that Christ, it is the design of the gospel that Christ may become ours and that we may be engrafted into his body. Union with Christ is the heart of the gospel. John Murray says it this way, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. It's not simply a phase of the application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of redemption. Union with Christ. Now, what I want to do in order to really apply this to our lives tonight is rather than just doing an overview and hitting all the different passages that speak to our union with Christ, I want to take one passage, in fact, one verse, and it's the verse that I think is the verse that, that if there is a summary of this teaching on the spiritual life to be found in the New Testament, in one single verse, I think it's this verse, and that is Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. Galatians 2.20, I think, gives us the closest thing we have to a single verse summary of the New Testament teaching on the spiritual life. And the reason I think that this is so important is that I think for many of us, the, the biggest lie that we are prone to believe is the lie that says, this is just the way that it is. This is just the way that I am. Right? The lie that says, I can't change. That, that this is just the way that it is. This, this is just the way that I am. This is just the way that, that my character is. This is just the way that, that I operate. That this sin struggle that's been a part of my life for so long, it's just the way I am. That my, my marriage, just the way that it is. My relationships, it's just the way they are that we believe the lie that says we cannot change. But I think in this passage, Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that's all about our union with Christ, we find three truths that combat that lie that are central, necessary for us to understand and apply in order to experience real, deep, lasting change. Now, please don't misunderstand me. I'm not suggesting to you tonight that these are three simple steps to change, that that, that you just apply these three simple steps and and your life will be altogether different. If it was that simple, we'd all be changed. That there is no simple formula for transformation in the spiritual life. That it will take a lifetime to really learn and live out the implications of the truths that we find in Galatians chapter 2.20. But friends, I'm convinced that we will not change apart from really understanding and applying the truth that we find in Galatians 2.20. Apart from our ability to understand and apply these truths, this is just the way that it is. <laughs> this is just the way that I am. And so in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, we read the words of the Apostle Paul, where he says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you see how this passage speaks to the idea of our union with Christ, our connection to him? I wanna focus first on this little phrase at the beginning of the verse where Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I think the first thing that we need to realize, the first truth that we have to learn 
and live out if we're going to experience change in our Christian life is the truth that in Christ I died. In Christ I died. That, that Paul talks in a number of places about the idea that, that we, were, we died with him, that we were buried with him. In fact, one of the places that he speaks to this is in Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6, Paul talks about the idea that we died to sin. Romans 6, verse 6 and 7, Paul says, For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been set free from sin. The implication of Paul's words here is that because we died with Jesus, anyone who dies has been set free from sin. Because we died with him, we have been set free from sin. In Romans chapter 6, Paul actually makes a distinction between sins and sin. He makes a distinction between sins, plural, and sin, singular. Sins, plural, are the actions that we commit that are sinful. But sin, singular, is sin as a power, sin as a principle, sin as an authority. And Paul talks all in this context in Romans chapter 6 about the idea that we in Adam, prior to our being in Christ united with him, that we were slaves to sin, that we were under sin's power, under sin's authority, that we had no choice but to sin. And yet what Paul says is because we died with Jesus, we've been taken out from under that power, that principle, that authority, and placed under a new power, a new principle, a new authority. And that is the power, principle, authority of Jesus, the power, principle, and authority of grace. You can imagine it this way. Imagine it as, as two different fields separated by a road down the middle. And you're born and you live your whole life as a slave in the one field. And you hear the words, the commands of that slave master and you have no choice but to obey. And yet at some point you are set free. You are liberated, you were taken out of that field and you were placed in the other field, in the new field. You have a new freedom there. You have a new master there. And yet what happens for many of us, for all of us at some time, is that even as we're working in our new field, we, we hear the voice of the old master, we hear that voice calling out to us, and we find ourselves prone to going back and living that old way of life. But Paul says something really important here. You have been set free from the power of sin. Sin no longer has an authoritative claim on your life. If you let sin have that power, the only power that sin has is the power that you give it. Because we've been united with Christ, we've died with him, therefore we've been set free from the power of sin. We need to learn to, to know, to remember, to say to ourselves over and over again, sin is not my master. When we find ourselves in those moments of temptation, those moments where we find ourselves drawn back to those old sinful patterns, we need to say to ourselves, sin is not my master. 
In fact, will you just make that simple affirmation with me tonight? Can we say that together? Sin is not my master. And can you say it one more time with me with, with a little gusto, like you really believe it? Let's say it strongly together. Sin is not my master. Okay, one more time, but this time what I want you to do, I want you to whisper it really softly. All right, here we go. Sin is not my master. And you need to learn to whisper that to yourself over and over and over again. Sin is not my master. Anyone who has died has been set free from sin. We died with Christ. Paul goes on, though, in that same context in the next chapter, Romans chapter 7, to say not only did we die to sin, but we died to the law. Paul writes in Romans 7 verse 4, and he says, So, my brothers and sisters, you also died to the law, through the body of Christ, that you might belong to another, to him who raised you from the dead, who was raised from the dead, in order that we might bear fruit for God. Paul says you died, not only you died to sin, but you died to the law. You, you died to any sense that you need to feel that you have to somehow earn God's favor by what you do. That our standing with God has nothing to do with our performance for him. And that we need not feel like what, what now we're left with is do more, try harder. That we died to the law. Now, it's really important that Paul in this whole section, and boy, we could spend a, a whole night for a long time talking about the, the rich, deep teaching in Romans chapter 7. But one of the things that's really important that for us to understand is that when Paul talks about that we died to the law, he's not saying that the law is bad. The problem isn't the law. The problem is me. The problem is my inability to live up to the demand of the law. But Paul says, because we died with him, we're now released from the demand of the law. Um, I uh, had the opportunity last spring break to do a little trip with my kids um, and my wife. We took off to uh, Denver, Colorado for spring break. We survived the bomb cyclone, if any of you heard about that thing. It was like a hurricane-force storm dumping snow over the center of Colorado in the middle of March. It was crazy. Um, but we were out there, and we had a great time, excellent trip. The only sort of thing about it was is that I took a different route than I'd ever driven before, and I'm driving through Colorado, and suddenly I look up in my rearview mirror, and I see the lights behind me. I brought home a wonderful souvenir from our spring break trip, a self-addressed stamped envelope from the Department of Motor Vehicles for the state of Colorado. And the guy got out, he came to my window, and he said, do you know what the speed limit is along here? In my mind, I'm thinking, must have been lower than what I was going. <laughs> and uh, he, I said, sir, I, I, honestly, I don't know. He said, son, you've been on this road for a couple of hours. You've been out of the state of Texas. And maybe back in Texas, that was okay, but not here in Colorado. Now, the problem wasn't the law. The problem was me. Paul 
in Romans 7 says the law is good, but the problem lies with us. That we have died with Christ and therefore died to the claims of law. If something had happened to me, heaven forbid, if something had happened to me after we got back home, but before I wrote my check to the state of Colorado, something had happened to me, I would have been released from the demand of the law. I wouldn't have had to pay the fine. And Paul says that's true of you and me, that because we died with Christ, we were released from the demands of the law. He, he talks here about the idea so that you might belong to another, and in the immediate context, Paul uses the marriage metaphor. He talks about a woman who's married to a man, and, and she's bound to that man as long as he's alive, but if he dies, then she's released. She can marry another. He's using that metaphor to talk about this relationship and the way in which now we have died to the law so that we might belong to another. You might imagine it this way. There's a young woman who meets a man, and he's perfect. I mean, he's amazing. His character is flawless. Everybody around her thinks this guy is incredible. Even her mother likes him. And uh, it, it, he, seems, he seems perfect. After a period of dating, they get engaged and eventually get married, but th that's the point at which things then become difficult. After they return home from their honeymoon, the first day, as he is about to head out to work, he doesn't embrace her. He doesn't kiss her and, and tell her he loves her. He leaves her a list. You can already tell this isn't going well, right? <laughs> he leaves her a list of all the things that he expects for her to do today and, and all the things that he expects her absolutely not to do today. And he goes off to work, and, and all day long, she's looking at this list. She's thinking, there's no way I can do all of this. And she tries really hard, and yet at the end of the day, he comes home. And, uh, and he doesn't embrace her. He doesn't kiss her. He doesn't tell her he loves her. He pulls out the list and begins to check to see how she's done. And, of course, she's failed She's devastated. But she determines in her heart, tomorrow is going to be better. Tomorrow, I'm going to try harder. I'm going to do better tomorrow. And tomorrow plays out the exact same way. And they live this way on and on and on for decades. And the longer they live together in this way, the more she feels like a failure. The more she feels ashamed the more she recognizes that even though he is perfect, I can never live up to his perfection. And at some point, he dies. And she, of course, does everything that she ought to do. She wears black, she mourns, she uh, you know, attends the services, and yet there's something inside her that now feels free. In time, she meets another man. And he's every bit as perfect as the first one. I mean, his character is flawless. Everybody loves him. And in time, they fall in love, they get married, and yet everything is different. Because this man, while he is every bit as perfect as the first guy, he adores her. He loves her. He showers her with affection, with gifts, 
Every day he tells her how much he loves her. He embraces her. He kisses her. That, that even though he has expectations of her, he tells her, I know you can't do this alone. I'm here with you to help you, to walk with you. We can do this together. And that even when she fails him, and even when she hurts him, he never stops loving her. He forgives her. He adores her. He showers his affection upon her. These two men are Mr. Law, Mr. Grace. Paul says, you died to the law so that you might belong to another. In Christ, I died. I died to the power, the principle, the authority of sin. I died to the demand of the law that I might belong to another. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, Paul says back in Galatians 2, but Christ lives in me. Christ lives in me. In Christ, I died, but by Christ, I'm indwelt. Christ lives in me. That because of the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, when we trust in Jesus, we are united with him, that, that we are indwelt by the personal presence and power of God that the Holy Spirit unites us with Jesus. Last night, uh, Jonathan mentioned the Scottish theologian Alexander McLaren, and I perked up when I heard his name mentioned, um, and, uh, because I actually intended to talk about it. There's a phenomenal essay that McLaren writes about um, our union with Christ, but before I uh, quote Alexander McLaren, I just thought I'd show you his picture. Um, isn't this classic? Don't you love it? The, that's all neck beard right there, right? This is the, this, I mean, Greg's got the mutton chops. I think we need to bring back the neck beard. What do you think, right? <laughs> I love it. M McLaren writes about our union with Christ. And he talks about the idea that some, some people sort of think of it as, well, Jesus just has an ongoing influence on the lives of those who follow him. J Jesus Life and teaching has an ongoing influence. And McLaren says, no, 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 no. He says, a dead Plato may so influence his followers. But that's not how a living Christ influences his disciples. What is meant is no mere influence derived from but separable from him. But it is his own self, exercising influences which are inseparable from his presence and only to be realized when he dwells in us. That for us to really experience life change requires us to learn and to live out the implications of the idea that the life I live, I live in Christ. That his power, that his presence is available to me. Friends, the Christian life is not difficult. It's not. The Christian life is not difficult. 
It's impossible. (laughs) We can't do it ourselves. We can't live the Christian life in our own power, in our own strength. Think about it. Um, In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, Jesus ups the ante even from the Old Testament law, right? The law said don't, don't commit murder. Jesus says if you're angry, right, if you say to your brother, you fool, you idiot, you moron, you've already committed murder in your heart. The law said, don't commit adultery. Jesus says, if you even look upon a woman in lust, you've already committed adultery in your heart. Uh, C.S. Lewis applies this same thinking when he says, uh, a man who looks upon ham and eggs and lusts has already committed breakfast in his heart. (laughs) What Jesus gets at here is the idea that, that what's really the issue with God is this condition of our heart. And he ups the ante. He must have had a lot of confidence in us, didn't he? No. He has a lot of confidence in himself. That we need to learn that we can't do this on our own. That we need a strength, that we need a power that comes from outside of us and that comes into us and dwells with us. I have been crucified with Christ and no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The life I now live, I live by faith. That in Christ I died, that by Christ I am indwelt, and that on Christ I am dependent. I live the life by faith. I love the way that McLaren speaks to this in that same essay I mentioned before when he says, faith is self-distrust, right? Faith is the recognition that I need a power outside of myself, that I can't do it myself. The prayer that has become so central to my spiritual life, a prayer that I pray over and over and over again in all kinds of situations and circumstances is this simple little prayer. Holy Spirit, I am weak. You are strong. Be strong in me. Holy Spirit, I am weak. You are strong. Be strong in me. I see uh, a, a number of folks that I can only assume are grandparents here in the room. How many of you grandparents in the room? Let me see your hands. Yeah. One of my favorite memories of being a little kid was my grandmother reading to me. I mean, it was glorious. The time that we shared together, and she would read me books. And my favorite story as a little kid, I'm not sure why it was, but my favorite story for my grandmother to read to me was a story about a little train. A little train that had to take the toys and candy to the good little boys and girls on the other side of the mountain, right? And, and the little train had the mountain to climb and, and so looked for other trains that might help her get those toys and candy over to the good little boys and girls on the other side of the mountain and nobody would help. And so finally, that little train set out and as she went up the mountain, you remember what she said, I 
think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. I think I can. And she gets to the top of the mountain. She sees the other side and the village where all the good little boys and girls are. And she begins to the descent down the hill. And she says, I thought I could. I thought I could. I thought I could. I can hear my grandmother's voice. Yet I teach a class at Dallas Seminary called Spiritual Life, and I tell my students about that little book that my grandmother read to me. And I said, my primary purpose in this course is to disabuse you of the notion that the spiritual life is primarily about, I think I can, I think I can, I think I can. But in fact it is, I know I can't. You see, friends, sometimes, unfortunately, there are people who believe that, that the way we get in to the Christian life is by grace through faith, and then it's up to us. And this, my friends, is antithetical to the teaching of the New Testament, that we are saved by grace through faith, and we are transformed by grace through faith. Faith is self-distrust. I know I can't. Holy Spirit, I am weak. You are strong. Be strong in me. But there's more to this notion of faith than merely self-distrust, than merely recognizing the limits of my own ability. Throughout the Christian tradition, uh, theologians have talked about genuine faith as involving three components captured in these three Latin words. Notitia. Ascensus and fiducia. Notitia, notitia is the content of our faith. It is that which we believe, right? The, the, the content of our faith. Um, ascensus is our mental assent to the truth of the content of that faith. If we were imagining a, a chair sitting here, that the, 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 the belief that that chair could hold me up that would be the content of the faith. My assent to that belief, my agreeing mentally that the chair could hold me up, that's a census, assent. But the last one is fiducia. That is the personal trust in and reliance on the content of the faith. Fiducia would be me actually going over and sitting down in the chair, trusting that it will hold me up. And all three are required for genuine Christian faith. Right? Even the demons believe, right? They assent to the truth about Jesus. But they don't trust in him. And for us to live the Christian life, for us to really experience deep, meaningful, and lasting life change, we have to understand that we've died to sin and we've died to the law. We have to understand that, that we are indwelt by a power outside of us that we can't live it out on our own and that we are dependent on Christ, personally depending on him. It's been 20 years ago since my father passed away. My dad died my second year as a student at Dallas Seminary. Um, he was a young man. I was really, in a lot of ways, just a kid. 
And uh, the last two weeks of my dad's life, he had cancer. The last two weeks of my dad's life, I moved into my parents' home, became my, my dad's primary caretaker. And uh, I would sit beside his bed, and I basically lived in a chair beside my dad's bed the last two weeks of his life. I would remember watching him sleep and watching his chest going up and down and just wondering when it was going to stop. The disease had so ravished my dad's body, he was weak. And, uh, and I'll never forget that, that he got to the point where he, he couldn't even get up out of his bed and, and make the journey down the hall to the bathroom in his own strength. And so I would go to my dad and I would grab him by the forearms and hoist him up. And he'd walk down the hall. And when I was a kid in church, we used to sing a song called Leaning on the Everlasting Arm. And I'll never forget walking down the hall with my dad, his entire body weight leaning onto my forearms and taking little baby steps down the hall and him singing, leaning, leaning, safe and secure in all alarms, leaning, leaning, leaning on the everlasting arms. And that's a picture of the spiritual life that my dad took with him into eternity and that I will carry with me through the rest of my life because that is a picture of the Christian life, taking little baby steps with Jesus, leaning on the everlasting arms. Friends, God is faithful to unite us to Christ our union with Christ is a pervasive theme throughout the New Testament. Time and time and time again, the New Testament authors speak about the implications of our being united with Christ. And I think the only way that we can get past the lie that says this is just the way that it is, this is just the way that I am, is to combat that lie with these three truths about union with Christ that we find in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I died with Christ, that I'm indwelt by Christ, and that I depend on Christ. All week long, without our intending to do it, we've given you application to do while you're brushing your teeth or taking a shower, and I'm not sure exactly where else to suggest you do this this week, but my suggestion to you would be if you haven't already memorized Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, that before you leave camp this week, would you commit this verse to memory and to commit to learning for the rest of your life what it means to live out the profound implications of this truth of our union with Christ. I've been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I now live in the body, I live by faith and the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Would you join me in prayer? Father, we thank you for your great love with which you have loved us. We're reminded even in these words from the Apostle Paul of the extent to which you went to show us that you loved us by sending your son into the world, that he loved us and gave himself for us.
He gave his all for us. He laid down his life for us. He died on our behalf. And because of our union with him, because you are faithful to unite us to Christ, we died with him. Lord, help us to learn that that's true. To learn that we died to the authority of sin, that sin is not my master. And I'm released from the demand of the law that I might live for another. And Lord, help us to learn what it means that because of our union with Christ and because of the presence and power of the Spirit in our lives, that we have a power that comes from outside of us but comes within us, that we can't do it ourselves in our own strength and our own power. That it's not about I think I can, I think I can, I think I can, but I know I can't. And learning to live by faith, by saying, Holy Spirit, I am weak. You are strong. Be strong in me. (laughs) And learning every day of our life to take little baby steps with Jesus, leaning on the everlasting arms. Thank you. Thank you that you are faithful to unite us to Christ. Help us to learn it and live it and change. And we pray this in the name of our Savior. Amen.